Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about holiday predictions, inflation, and Rolex entering the pre-owned watch space. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from my very cold office in sunny Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from my apartment, which is kind of cold. It's a little cold <laughs> in uh, New York City. Sorry to hear that it's cold. Your your office? My garage office. Your garage office. I'm sitting here with a hot water bottle on my lap. It feels lovely. And I always feel a little, I guess, weak might be the word, complaining about the weather in LA because it honestly is quite sunny and it's certainly not as cold as my East Coast friends are dealing with. But, you know, we do get soft out here on the West Coast, I have to admit. i I've gotten soft. I left New York as a full-time resident in 2010 and have gotten progressively softer about the weather every year since. So there you have it. We're, you know, we're looking ahead. We're talking about the holiday and I wonder what you, you know, I I just had a very quick conversation with Abe Sherman from BIG, the Buyer's Intelligence Group this morning. And I asked him what he was hearing from his retailers that he works with, you know, very closely and very deeply, very well entrenched in their financials and what he was hearing about this holiday. And he's like, I'll tell you, 10 days. I guess it does feel like that for jewelers. Like things don't come into very clear focus until the very, very last few days of the holiday. Even five days in, you know, out from Christmas, you still don't quite know if it's as good a year as last year. I suspect it won't be as quite as good as last year, but what are you hearing, Rob? Yeah. So I, I think most people who are realistic don't expect it to be as good as last year or even on par with last year. I think if it's three or four points down or even 10% down, I think most people will be happy with that. And uh, one of the things that, you know, when Signet um, announced its results, one of the interesting things that Gina Drosis said was she theorized that was because last year a lot of people did their shopping early because they were very worried about supply chains. But this year we're seeing a kind of a more regular shopping pattern with, by at least anecdotal and media reports, the malls being very crowded on Black Friday. So October was definitely down from what I hear, you know, from wholesalers and a couple of retailers I've spoken to, things are definitely picked up as we're getting closer to the holiday. But I think most people are realistic that it's not going to be as good as they've been enjoying for the last two years. But most people are hopeful, at least, that will be at least respectable. And again, we're coming off such a high base from 2021, which was like one of the best years the industry ever had that, you know, I think most people don't expect that to continue. But the question is where we're going to end up. That all makes sense. I certainly have heard the same. And I guess it's a question of besides these sort of questions around Rina's point about last year people bought early because of supply chain concerns this year they're back to their same old habits of waiting till the last minute um, inflation you know Jim my partner just came back from the grocery store and he's like since when is orange juice six dollars you know I know that those concerns seem to be easing or at least so I hear because of the Fed's sort of aggressive anti-inflation tactics yeah. which is still I mean we still I think have seven percent inflation which is not what most of us are used to. You know, I do think that 
that certainly impacts the way the middle class spends, certainly on jewelry. I don't know that it's a huge deal for the wealthy, for the upper class. And increasingly, you know, we just have those bifurcated markets. We had, I mean, it's an older story. An old, in fact, an old story, you know, about the very wealthy and their seeming immunity and to these greater macro issues we see in the marketplace. And then, you know, the middle class and everybody else struggles along and has to adjust their spending and what it all means. So I think we continue to see that in the jewelry space as we approach the final weeks of shopping for this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, at least in jewelry, you know, it's been the pattern for the last couple of years that, you know, you have these big gains on the high end and not necessarily broad-based gains among kind of lower and middle income shoppers. And one of the things that was kind of gratifying and heartening during the pandemic was you did see gains all across the board. But now we're kind of going back to the kind of pre-pandemic pattern where, you know, it's the ultra wealthy and everything else. And again, getting back to Signet, they said a lot of their gains were at the high end, at the so-called accessible luxury component of the business, which has been a big focus of theirs after they bought Blue Nile and um, Diamonds Direct. So I think we're definitely seeing the kind of stratification we saw in, in prior years. You know, one of the things that a lot of jewelers learned during the pandemic was they definitely upped their digital game. And hopefully that will continue. I was just looking at on TikTok. I finally signed up for TikTok. Trying nice. to it. But there's a lot of jewelers putting out a lot of very creative and interesting and fun stuff on TikTok. And I was really impressed how, you know, somebody with a little store can with just a little iPhone camera can put something out and get sometimes if it's clever enough and it kind of people discover it can get millions of views. You know, I, I really uh, got a hand to people who, who do that. So I think that's the um, that's kind of the wave of the future. Yes. I mean, I downloaded TikTok some time ago and hate to say I've done almost nothing on that platform. And it does feel like this abyss. You sort of slip in, it's a black hole and you get sucked in and, you know, eight hours later, you, it might spit you out and you've really got nothing to show for yourself yes. <laughs> other than, you know, some memes stuck in your head. So I guess that's what I'm scared of, but maybe that's, that's the beauty uh, of it. Apparently too. it's great for books. I mean, I'm not on there, but uh, apparently it sells books looks like crazy. Well, that's that's cool. You know, we've recently done stories on a lot of, I mean, we have done stories on TikTok and how jewelers are using that platform. We've uh, even more interesting is how users, jewelers are using YouTube and how they're putting together videos, introducing themselves, introducing their stores. There have been some really great examples of jewelers putting that platform, that medium to great effect. So I think there are lots of ways that jewelers can in 23 think about expanding their marketing to include things like YouTube, podcasts, like the very one we're on, and TikTok, of course. Yeah. And what's interesting about TikTok is it, at least for the moment, there's an organic nature to it. I think people want it to be very organic, like some kind of quick thing that you make with your iPhone and not some fancy thing that, you know, costs uh, millions of dollars and where, you know, people will accept that kind of content on YouTube and accept that kind of content on Instagram. And both Instagram and YouTube have their kind of TikTok knockoffs that they run. But I think most of the stuff on TikTok is usually just a person with a phone. And uh, that's kind of the weird charm of it. And that's why it's good for jewelers, because you just have a clever idea and you just 
can kind of run with it. Yeah, and I guess there is always that possibility that it will go viral in some way. I don't know that that's all that predictable. Even with all the data analytics we have now, I think some things just catch fire on a yeah. place like TikTok without any real rationale behind them. But yeah, my New Year's resolutions are always about what I need to get my arms around for the new year. And I suppose TikTok, I'm very late to that game, but I suppose I should probably get around to it. Nothing against TikTok, but there are better probably resolutions. Yeah, you know, by the time our children are social media savvy. I very much believe that we'll have had one, two, or maybe three different platforms we've all cycled through that are meaningful and relevant until they're not. So we'll see what, you know, 10 years from now, what our teenagers are up to. But I somehow feel like it probably won't be TikTok. It'll have its moment, you know, and it'll be something else. Anyway, the predictions part of our podcast will be the next episode you hear after this one. So we'll stay tuned. Just in terms of the holiday and wrapping up that conversation, this is airing four or five, six days before the holiday. We don't exactly know what the final numbers will be, but we feel pretty confident they won't be as good as 21. That's okay. Lots of people are, I think, girding themselves for that. And because 21, as you very rightly pointed out, was such a fantastic year, maybe the most fantastic year for this industry, then, you know, it feels very reasonable that we're not going to be there again. How many record-breaking years can you have in a row? If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. There was a big story about... Uh, Rolex? Yes, a very big story, actually. On December 1st, Rolex sent out an announcement and the headline was Rolex launches the Rolex certified pre-owned program. And while in talking to people in the watch community, it sounds like rumors were afoot as early as March that Rolex was preparing to formally enter the pre-owned space. The fact that it did and it has and it now is supportive of the certified pre-owned market through Booker, by the way. So it's launched a program currently only in Europe through select Booker locations. Booker, of course, is the Swiss retailer that also has a presence in the U.S. through its acquisition of Tourneau. So we'll time will tell when this certified pre-owned program will come to the U.S. A lot of Rolex's authorized dealers clearly already are in the pre-owned space. Booker has an established pre-owned program, so it's not brand new in terms of the way these retailers do business. What is brand new is that Rolex is given its stamp of approval it's certifying these pieces. You know, big question is who is setting the pricing and, you know, how this will be received by the market. A lot of people in the secondhand watch space seem to think it's great news for the business. It just further legitimizes the secondhand business, you know, gives it a sort of a little bit of a less wild west feel. Some people think it's it's not going to be great for consumers because it'll just force people who are customers of these authorized dealers will come in and they'll be kind of shuffled into the pre-owned space and we'll have to pay inflated prices that Rolex sets that are perhaps 15 to 25% above what you might find for the same models out in, you know, in places like Chrono 24 or Watchbox or Crown and Caliber or any number of pre-owned dealers who've been in this space for years. I think a lot of people suspect that Rolex has done this and I, I find the rationale very interesting because Rolex of course, doesn't explain itself when it makes these announcements. But a lot of people think it's a way to, what is the word I'm looking for? I mean, they have not had stock in their stores for the better part of the last year. Been well publicized. You walk into a Rolex dealership and either there's literally nothing in the showcases or what is there is not available for purchase. So as a customer, that's very frustrating. Certainly as a retailer trying to please your customers, that's very frustrating. So the idea is that Rolex maybe 
has been sitting on this program for a while and figured now was the time to dust it off, put it into the market and give retailers something to sell. You know, maybe in anticipation of future supply demand imbalances, maybe they realize that even though they're building a factory, which we've publicized, you know, that's in the works in Switzerland and they're expanding production or at least thinking about expanding production, that their supply challenges will continue into 23, 24, 25, and they want to give their retailers something to sell. Well, one thing I heard that was interesting was that of pre-owned watches, and maybe it's not that surprising, Rolex is about 50% of what people buy when they buy pre-owned watches. One thing a lot of people had questions about is how is the trade-in going to work, right? There was obviously questions about how is Rolex going to price them, right? Because that will obviously be something that'll be hugely important in the market. But also, if people bring in their Rolex watches to a local dealer, how's it going to work? Will the local dealer verify it? Will they give credit? Will they give money? How is all that going to work? And it seems Rolex made this big announcement about the program, but there's a lot of logistical questions that are up in the air. Yes, I mean, there are, and I'm not sure that Rolex will provide any further communication on it. But, you know, keep in mind, a lot, like, as I mentioned, a lot of these dealers have already had pre-owned programs well-established. Most people, when they bring in their timepiece to sell at a local dealership, they're usually not just walking in and trying to sell it and walking out with cash. They're usually trying to trade it in and trade up for another piece. So I think those dealers have, you know, they have all their brands, they have all kinds of different offers there. So it may work similar to that. Now, the question is, who will be certifying, repairing, refurbishing, whatever needs to be done to these pieces to make them Rolex certifiable? You know, a lot of these authorized dealers obviously have their repair centers and they have their established authorized Rolex trained watchmakers. So I take it, although this is a question, that they will be handling those things at their local service center, or maybe there's a regional service center through, you know, like for example, the Watchers of Switzerland group gets something on the order of 70% of its repairs handled through its Fort Lauderdale service center. So, you know, we'll have to see when that program arrives stateside. And I do have questions out to Booker on this, but I have not heard back yet. But, you know, if you go to Booker's website, they have a whole pre-owned Rolex section. They have a whole pre-owned watch section just online. So a lot of this stuff is going to be happening online. And there's just a lot of stuff we won't be able to answer until six months, a year, two years from now. A lot of brands in the smaller kind of independent space have have already established pre-owned programs. I think about brands like F.P. Journe, MBNF, H. Moser, but the bigger brands have yet to go there. Audemars Piguet is one brand that about four years ago announced that it was doing a pre-owned program, a trial through some of its boutiques in Switzerland, and I think quietly either dismantled that program or, or somehow did not really fully bring it to its full potential because when I reached out to them, they said they're not ready to comment yet, even though they've already kind of, you know, they made an announcement years ago saying they were doing this and then just never really, you know, I don't know if it didn't work or if they just didn't put all their resources behind it. Omega declined to comment. Cartier, I suspect, will decline to comment. Patek Philippe, I suspect, will also decline to comment. But these big brands... I think have been making so much money over the last few years and clearly all want to sell new. I mean, this is where the driver of their business is. They've always, always been much more focused on new and 
even though a lot of them are dusting off, you know, working with heritage pieces and trying to create sort of vintage programs that highlight special models from their past, because they realize there's value in establishing heritage and giving collectors and watch lovers a sense that the brand cares about its timepieces and that it's there to you know, keep that market happy. Most of these brands, the bigger groups are really only concerned about selling new. So it's, it's interesting because even with Rolex making this big move into the marketplace, you probably will see more brands formally enter the space or acknowledge it in some way in a, in an official way. But the the Swiss are insanely slow when it comes to these kinds of initiatives. They take their very sweet time. I, I thought it was interesting, you know, you have a lot of these established pre-owned marketplaces and most of them said, you know, we're happy about this. It legitimizes the space. I mean, I think it always was a legitimate space. As you mentioned, there's a lot of big people involved, but they hope it will boost the space. But I also think they have to be worried about competition and Rolex will be a price setter and it'll probably be more expensive than some of these other places just to have the kind of Rolex certification. You're probably going to end up paying for that versus being certified by someplace else, even if both certifications are just as legitimate. You know, we've talked a lot about how there's this big community of watch collectors. Have you got a sense of how they're reacting to this announcement? I think some people are very cynical. You get these anecdotes where people prior to this, you know, people walked into their Rolex authorized dealer, the only way they could possibly even remotely be considered to buy a, at retail, so say the new new Daytona, the new Submariner, the new what have you, is by spending a lot of money at that authorized dealer, buying a lot of B-class, C-class pieces that aren't just in demand. You know, the only way you can really be considered for those primary pieces is if you're just spending a lot of money at that store. And I suppose a lot of cynics now think, well, it might be similar here. You got to buy all this, you know, less than desirable pre-owned stuff before you get to be considered for the new shiny coveted timepiece. In general, I think people think it's a good move, but a lot of people just don't think they'll want to pay 15 to 25% premium or whatever we think that premium might be that, you know, you'd rather just go buy that same model at a Chrono 24 at a watch finder and you don't need that two year Rolex warranty or certification. Do people think that, as I mentioned, you know, most secondhand watches are Rolexes or a, a large percentage of, of, of secondhand watches uh, being traded in are, are Rolexes. Do people think that Rolex will be a dominant player in the space of used Rolexes? I mean, will it have that huge impact on the space? I guess we don't know, right? And we don't even know what the timetable will be when, when this wall bill all come here. Right. Well, I mean, Rolex dominates every market it's in. Again, this is the first time Rolex is directly in the pre-owned space. But, you know, every time I talk to anybody, any analysts or any, I mean, let's put it this way. All the authorized dealers I've reached out to are like, we can't comment because Rolex has so much power, you know, over them that, you know, the, the fear that they might say something wrong or say something that doesn't sort of align with Rolex's communications is so great that they just won't comment. So I can't even really get to those authorized dealers because they're very, very, very reluctant to speak even off record. And Rolex, anytime I speak to an analyst, it's like you've got Planet Rolex and then you've got Planet Watchmaking. And they're 
almost two different universes. Rolex can do anything it wants. It generally has done, you know, anything it wants and it succeeds. It's just got that much power. So it's always fascinating to see how much power a single brand can hold, can wield. And I don't anticipate it'll be anything different in the pre-owned space. You know, it's hard to imagine unintended consequences. Rolex is so smart and has so many resources and has likely been thinking about this for six, seven, eight years. You know, I mean, it certainly it's it's not the kind of company that thinks about something and churns it out and you know and six months later here you go i mean there are so much thought put behind this that i feel like they've certainly thought it through do you want to talk about color diamonds at auction the idea is that a couple of a few color diamonds have failed to sell or done poorly at auction what it tell us about the maybe one or two that are the most dramatic in that way and and why and then and then yeah it's it's been uh really interesting you know de beers put out this big collection of eight blue diamonds and one I one they withdraw and two failed to sell. There's been this golden canary diamond, which was formerly the incomparable that kind of uh, it didn't have a reserve. So it sold, but it, it fell a little bit below the estimate. There's been a bunch of diamonds that have kind of fell on the low end of the estimates. There was a pink diamond that was withdrawn from sale. And I think that got a lot of people buzzing and it it turned out, you know, a lot of people were speculating that perhaps that was a sign of weakness in the market. And it turned out that it had nothing to do with that, really. It just was stolen by this guy who claimed to be a psychic. It's a (laughs) very strange story. But yeah, I think that there's, uh, we're we're starting to see, uh, and you know, earlier this year, we had great results from color diamonds at auction. And we're definitely starting to see this period where the results are not as spectacular as they were. And, you know, as I mentioned, De Beers has this collection of eight blue diamonds. So far, it's put two out for sale and then was going to sell one and then withdrew it. Anyway, so it's it's so far sold zero of, of, the, of that eight. And I'm, I'm sure somebody will buy them at some point, and I'm sure they'll command a nice price. But there's definitely a slowing, and I think it's definitely a, a trend that we're starting to see. Wow. Do you think it's just indicative of the economy at large and kind of a little pessimism in the marketplace, or is there another reason? I mean, there's there's a bunch of reasons that people offer. It could be a sign of slowing in the economy and that people want to conserve their assets. There's theories that, you know, we're talking sometimes about Russian-based money or Chinese-based money, and, you know, those two countries are definitely a little more cautious. And there's also the idea that the market's been oversaturated, that, you know, you sell eight blue diamonds. You know, blue diamonds are the, are, are the rarest, they're special, and they're just incredibly beautiful. But you sell eight of them, and it it kind of takes away the specialness of them. And these are objects that they have a limited market. I mean, most people can't afford to spend 10 million or 20 million dollars for a diamond, even if you're, you know, even if you're a, a billionaire, that can be a decent amount of money. And, you know, when you have so many of these diamonds come on the market year after year, it does kind of take away some of the specialness of them. I mean, you know, I, I've been writing articles about these things for years and, and it gets a little tiring because it's always these, first of all, the records they 
claim are are weird. So this is like the world's largest pink, flawless, vivid, fancy, vivid, flawless. I mean, you know, these are these are kind of meaningless records to most people, right? It's a record. It's a it's a legitimate record, but I don't think that's like a benchmark that most people use. So it gets kind of the specialness of these diamonds has perhaps been a little diluted by so many of them coming on the market. And I, I don't think anybody doubts that they're valuable and that they're beautiful and that they are true collector's items and that they're rare. But when you see them so often, it kind of dilutes the idea of their rarity, I would say. Right. So many blue diamonds, so little time. Oh. Yes. Well, okay. So maybe maybe there's a, a little fire sale to be had on blue diamonds. Should I be there passing? There there's, there's eight of them looking for a home. Okay. All right. Jim, Jim. There you go. You need some ideas. I'm on my way home. Exactly. So those of you looking for blues, maybe there's a a deal to be had. All right. Well, we probably won't, uh, won't be talking again until the new year, but thank you everyone for listening. Have a wonderful holiday, safe and happy and prosperous and all the best for 2023. Yes. We'll see you uh, then. Take care, everybody. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.